This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, we'll be starting the legend of Theseus from Greek mythology. You probably know him from his fight with the Minotaur in the labyrinth, but there's so much more to the original story. For instance, you'll learn how you can keep a cyclops from attacking you by insulting him to his face. Then, on the Creature of the Week, you'll see how you can get rich from snatching up a chicken's egg, warming it under your armpit, and then letting it incubate in manure. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 17A. It's dangerous to go alone. This is a podcast where I tell stories that have shaped cultures throughout history. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you probably haven't heard, but really should. This week, I'm starting in on The Legend of Theseus, an incredibly popular set of stories from Greek mythology. You probably know about the Minotaur, but like many of these myths, the stories surrounding Theseus are equal parts deep character study about a human finding his place in the world, and ridiculous monster fights. Theseus actually showed up in Hercules' story from time to time, most prominently when Hercules and friends killed too many Amazonians and stole Hippolyte's belt. And then we met him again at the Twelfth Labor when we found him tied up in the underworld after a botched rescue-slash-kidnapping of Hades' not-at-all consensual bride, Persephone. We're back in the time of myth, so remember that these occasionally include members of the Greek pantheon, and, once again, time period doesn't really matter, though this is before the Trojan War. Today, I'll tell the story of Theseus, his early adventures, and introduce King Minos. We won't start with Theseus quite yet, though. We're going to get lost in the labyrinth. Midas didn't know it, but he was the last male left alive in the labyrinth. He hadn't seen anyone in nearly four days, and he had been in the labyrinth for what felt like a lifetime. Idas didn't dare sleep for more than an hour or two at a time, huddled in whatever crevice he could find, trying to keep away from... it. He was impossibly tired, and he dragged himself up off the sharp stone floor. In the beginning, the fourteen Athenians that had been trapped in here and given to the beast had a plan. Some would keep the torches burning. Others would bite their fingers, marking the passageways the group had already been through with their blood. They had a system. Then it appeared. They scattered the first time, and of the fourteen, Dis was able to regroup with eight. Then, one night, two men up keeping watch disappeared while the others slept. Then, they started to get hungry, and tempers flared. Phaedemus and Asteria broke off by themselves over an argument at a fork in the tunnels. More days passed, and, one by one, either from running for their lives or disappearing while others slept, Idas was the only one of his group left. He turned a corner. He had to find the spring again that they had found when they first came in, fresh water that had kept them alive. Minotaur or no, he would be dead from thirst if he didn't find it soon. He stumbled on in the darkness for a few more hours, guessing at which way to turn. Then... Off in the distance in the direction he had been going, down infinite forking paths, he heard a bellowing, a woman shouting, then nothing. Idas stopped, turned, and ran in the other direction. He didn't know it, but he was the last person left alive in the labyrinth. Many years before Idas and friends got lost in the labyrinth, King Aegeus was on the road back from the Delphic Oracle, pondering her answer. We talked about her in episode 10a, but basically she was a priestess of Apollo at the Temple of Delphi, and she could tell your future. 
or give you cryptic non-answers that only seem to answer the question after the event has taken place. Well, Aegeus had gone to the Oracle wondering when he would conceive a son and heir. He had been married twice, but it hadn't happened yet. He was getting on in age, too, and he really needed to have this succession issue hammered out. The answer to, will I have a son, was, quote, for him not to loose the mouth of his wineskin before he reaches the height of Athens, lest he die of grief. He was, rightfully, very confused about this, but he stayed the night with King Pythus in his town. The town was called Treason, but it has no relation to the English word. As an aside, a town called Treason sounds like an awesome western movie. King Pythus, as it turns out, was not confused by the prophecy. He was wise and apparently skilled at deciphering them. He knew that if Aegeus became drunk before reaching Athens, then he would father a son. In the prophecy, Pythus saw a solution to a problem he had. Never mind the whole Aegeus dying of grief thing. That was another problem for another day. He smiled and did not share this interpretation with Aegeus. Hey, Aegeus, Pythus said, have you met my daughter? Ethra, King Pythus's daughter, had been pledged in marriage to a man who was banished from the land and, thus, was not likely to return. This angered Pythus because he wouldn't be able to marry off his daughter and ensure the continuation of his line unless the man returned, which he wouldn't. He saw an opportunity with Aegeus. His daughter was beautiful, and at dinner that night he sat them next to each other. He served Aegeus quite a bit to drink. The damage was too full because Pythus had ordered the servants not to water down Aegeus's wine. In ancient Greece and Rome, they didn't drink wine like we do now. Everyone drank a lot more wine. And this wasn't to get drunk or anything. They did it for sanitary reasons. Everyone did it. And I mean everyone, even children. The water was not very sanitary, so mixing it in with some wine would kill off the bacteria and make it considerably safer to drink. Hesiod, a writer of a lot of these stories, recommended one part wine to three parts water. Drinking straight wine and bragging about how much you could drink was something barbarians did. Well, Aegeus, who was expecting one part wine to three parts water, got four parts wine to zero parts water, and really headed off with Ethra. Then things got a bit... fuzzy. The next morning, he woke up to the street noise ringing in his head. He had a pounding headache, and he looked to his left and saw Aethra, the king's daughter. He didn't remember any of this. He got up and was preparing to leave, but he stopped and thought about it, and he needed to do something. He turned to Ethra. Hey, so I'm sure that was very nice, but on the off chance that you're pregnant and have a son, I have a favor to ask. They walked together out of the city to a large rock. It was massive, and it had a hollow spot in the middle. Aegeus lifted it and put a pair of boots and a sword in it, and set it back down. And no explanation is given as to how he lifted it, or the following. In the event that she was pregnant, and that it was a son, she should take him to this place when he was ready. If he was heroic enough, then he would be able to lift this boulder and obtain the items. It was only under that very specific and exacting set of conditions that he would be remotely interested in having anything to do with a child by her. Mythology has a really low bar for father of the year, and while this seems terrible, he's actually looking out for the boy. Aegeus had brothers, who had sons. And while Aegeus was the king, he was constantly concerned about one of his brothers usurping him. And if his brothers weren't going to make the move for the throne, his nephews would. That's what led him on the road to the oracle in the first place. He had to know whether or not he should hold out for his own child, or formally announce one of his own family members as his heir, to avoid a very nasty succession crisis. On the off chance that Ethra was pregnant, then it had to stay a secret. The nephews would come for her and the child, 
On the even rarer chance that she had a son, he would need to prove that he was strong enough in some way to be able to stand up to the overwhelming number of people that would want him dead, should he ever visit Athens. If he wasn't strong enough to get the items left for him, that was fine, and he could live out the rest of his life in peace and obscurity here. Regardless, word could never reach Athens that Aegeus had a son, or else the baby and the mother would be killed. The child should only come to see his father if he was strong enough to take power. Then Aegeus left, and Anthra realized that she was, in fact, pregnant. She did as Aegeus had told her, and kept quiet about it. There was the issue of the father, though, and though Aethra was quiet, there was speculation. One of the members of her father's court came up with a lie that Poseidon had fathered the child, and it stuck. As an aside, there are other versions where Aethra was let off in a dream, which resulted in her getting together with Poseidon, and Poseidon being Theseus's actual father. With that weird demigod dual parentage thing like with Hercules. That's not the version I'm going with because it's almost completely unnecessary to the larger story, and I see it as a little ridiculous, but I like it better as a cover for his actual parentage. Ethra gave birth to a son, and named him Theseus, which is derived from a Greek word I can't pronounce that means to set or to place, an allusion to the items his father had placed for him. He was a brave child, so brave that when Hercules popped in to say hello to King Pythias sometime during his labors, he flung his Nemean lion cloak on the chair and all the children in the room bolted because they thought it was a real lion jumping around the room. Theseus ran, too, to get an axe to kill the beast. Hercules took a liking to this brave boy, and Theseus idolized him and sought to emulate him as he grew up. And yes, the timeline is a little problematic here. Seeing as Hercules' labors supposedly only took him ten years, yet Theseus is just seven years old here, which takes place after the first labor. It gets more problematic with the mention of Medea coming up, in mythology, it's hard to find consistency between different versions of the same story, yet alone between different stories that were told in different cultures, recorded hundreds or thousands of years apart. Back in Athens, King Aegeus was celebrating the Panathenaic Games, a religious festival and sporting competition that was similar to the Olympics. They included boxing, wrestling, chariot racing, and other things like music and poetry competitions. As an English major, and someone who spent way too much time studying poetry academically, part of me dreams of a world where the Olympics include a poetry competition. The games were not going well at all for the Athenians, and it was a clean sweep by Androgeus, the son of King Minos, of Crete. These competitions were originally only for Athenians, so Aegeus was mad. He thought of something. There was recently a bull that Hercules had captured in Crete, and brought to a certain King Eurystheus in Mycenae. King Eurystheus had no idea what to do with the dangerous bull, and he let it go rampaging across the countryside. Let's all just stop and remember what a great King Eurystheus was. Well, Aegeus approached the son of King Minos with a challenge. He had already proven himself better than all these mere mortals. How about taking a crack at the legacy of Hercules and capturing this bull? The son of Minos said that it would be no problem at all. The Cretan bull was like a bye week for Hercules on his labors. He's got this. Well, the son of King Minos finds the bull, tries to wrestle it, and dies nearly immediately. There's also a version of the story where the other competitors kill Androgeus, with the tacit approval of King Aegeus. They just meet him on the road to the next competition, and literally gang up on him, and kill him. All the competitors are pretty happy about all this, not having to face the man at the next competition. But King Minos, the boy's father, was enraged. Not only was his son killed, but he was killed by the thing that was the embodiment of his family's deep shame, and that was too much. He led an army to attack Athens. 
The war went poorly for Athens, and went on for a long time. Minos besieged the city, and they spent so long at war that Aegeus and the Athenians were willing to do anything to get it to stop. King Minos smiled. Anything? Minos had a very monstrous problem back home, and in the Athenians' willingness to acquiesce to whatever he demanded, he found a solution. Every one or nine years, versions differ on this, but we'll go with nine, he would need 14 young noble-born men and women, so seven of each, sent to him as tribute. It doesn't matter what he's going to do with them. It certainly wasn't, so he could release them into a dark, labyrinthic hell to be hunted by his illegitimate Minotaur stepson who was a living symbol of his shame. Don't worry about it. He'll be back in nine years to get the first group. See you later. The nine years pass, and Aegeus has no choice but to send the young men and women to Crete when Minos shows up at the city with an armada. He came to collect the youths, and they were never seen again. As an aside, that short blurb in the beginning, with the people running around from the Minotaur, that was almost completely fictional. I wanted to show and not tell what the labyrinth was like, and that the characters are named after people that supposedly died in the labyrinth, and the details of the place were as accurate as I could find. The characters' thoughts and actions are something that I made up to bring the place to life. The historical basis for the labyrinth is disputed, and doesn't really have any bearing on our story. I just want to say that it's described in some places as a large building, and others as a series of man-made underground tunnels. The tunnels theory seems to be slightly more academically accepted today, and I like the idea of the tunnels because it seems a bit more realistic. Yes, realistic. In a story about a monstrous half-man and half-bull chasing people around in the darkness, I really needed it to be realistic. The tribute to Creek continues, and it goes through two whole rotations, and there's no real end in sight. Meanwhile, in the town of Treason, Theseus is being brought up as the son of a princess. And though he never really knew his father, and, frankly, didn't buy the myth that he was the son of Poseidon, the rest of the people did buy the myth, and looked at him with the reverence of not just the grandson of the king, but as a demigod. He increased in honor and bravery, until the mother knew it must be the day to tell him of his actual father. It was nice to walk with her, but Theseus wondered what they were doing so far out here in the wilderness. Aethra now almost 20 years on, wouldn't tell him anything. She just wanted him to hurry up. They stopped at a boulder, and the mother looked at it, looked at her son, and simply said, Move it. Move it, Theseus said. It's a boulder. But his mother wouldn't respond. She thought he was heroic enough to do it, but this was the final test for him to gain his birthright. She sat down and looked off towards the coast. Theseus looked at it. There wasn't even any place to grip it, but he tried just to make her happy. He squatted down, wrapped his arms around it, and lifted. And it came up like it was made of straw. He was surprised, but even more surprised when he saw some stuff lying on the ground. He set it down and picked up the sandals and the sword, and his mother told him to take a seat. She had something to tell him. As an aside, I have no idea why it works where Theseus can just lift it up, and no one else can. What if Hercules had come through? Aethra told him all about the night 20-something years ago, when King Aegeus had come to visit her, and everything he had told her, and now, as heir to the throne, Theseus needed to go claim his birthright. It was only a short trip by boat across the gulf. He could be to Athens in a matter of hours. But Theseus stopped her. He would go, but he would take the much longer overland route, around the gulf, and his mother said absolutely not. 
the road from treason to Athens was plagued with very powerful bandits, who not only killed people, but went out of their way to find creative ways to do so. And Theseus said exactly. He was the son of the king of Athens, and he had trained his whole life, but until this point he had never been tested. If he survived this trip and cleared the road for travelers, he would be worthy of his birthright. If not, well, then no one ever needed to know about him, and he could die in obscurity. Everyone in treason tried reasoning with him, but he wouldn't hear it, and days later he set out, provisioned, on the road to Athens. Theseus had made a resolution before he set out. If he was going to do this, he was going to do so honorably. He wouldn't go looking for a fight, and he would wait for bandits to attack him first. The first one came mere hours outside of treason. As Theseus turned the corner on the forest road, the man, or whatever it was, filled his vision. He was huge, and the rumor about him was that he was the son of Hephaestus, the smith god, and he went by the name Paraphides. He walked with a limp like his father, and, of course, he was a cyclops. The thing had the jump on Theseus, and didn't wait to raise his bronze club above his head. Theseus didn't have any time to do anything other than stand there looking stupid, and he blurted out, Is that real bronze? And the bandit paused. What? What was this kid asking? He was used to people screaming, running, or soiling themselves when a club strike from a cyclops was imminent, but not asking stupid questions. Yes, of course it was real bronze. Now I'm going to kill you. I... I don't think it is, Theseus said. What? Of course it is, the cyclops said, and this is not a conversation we're having right now. I'm about to kill and rob you. Kill me, huh? Theseus said, and he was really surprised that this was working. Anything to hide the fact that your club isn't bronze? Okay, go ahead. The cyclops brought his arm up, but paused again. It's real bronze, you know. I'm a feared demigod bandit. I can afford a bronze club. Okay, Theseus said. It doesn't matter what I think. I'm a dead man. But I think it's fake. The Cyclops sighed. Okay, he said. Want to hold it really quickly before I kill you? Like you said, it doesn't matter what you think. But this is going to bother me all day. Theseus said that it would definitely help him believe the Cyclops. The bandit smiled, handed Theseus the club that was very much made of bronze, and Theseus immediately used it to bludgeon the bandit to death. Wiping off the club, he could see that it was very nice, and this guy was well known. In fact, it reminded Theseus of Hercules on his labors. Theseus decided to hold on to the club as a trophy, like Hercules had done with the Nemean lion cloak. He chose to be a bit more prudent with the next bandit, and it was well known where he was. His method of execution was particularly interesting. He would stand off the road and yell for help, and travelers would find him with a tree, bent down like a spring. He said he only needed a little bit of help, and the travelers would usually help him. When they helped him out, he would tie their hands loosely to the top of the tree. Then, he would rob them. And wait. Some lasted days, spending all of their strength holding back the tree like an arrow. Some lasted only hours. All, eventually, were flung off the cliff next to the tree. Theseus got the jump on the man and overpowered him. He only thought it fitting that the bandit should have a chance to try his strength the same way he had made all of his victims, and left him holding the tree. He was surprised by how quickly the man gave up, and plummeted to his death. The next fight was a large, man-eating pig. Theseus sought it out and killed it with a bronze club. That's about it for this one. The next one was Siron, 
an old man that would take people at knife point and demand payment for them washing his feet. He would then let them go. He didn't exactly stipulate how, though, and his seat faced off the cliff. After they finished, he would give them a sharp kick over the edge. And if the fall didn't kill them, the monstrous sea turtle would eat them, because of course there's a giant sea turtle in the gulf. Well, Theseus had heard of him, and he let himself be taken at knife point, robbed, and he washed the man's foot. When he was about to be kicked, though, he caught the foot and flung the man off his own cliff. As Theseus walked up farther, he saw Circeon, the king of Eleusius, stretching on the road. He was a king, but he also really liked wrestling, and he would challenge people. If you beat him, you get his kingdom. If you lost, he'd kill you, because like with Hercules, I guess all wrestling matches have to end in death. Theseus is outmatched in the strength arena, but he uses technique to beat Circeon, and earns his kingdom. Theseus is actually credited with developing the sport of wrestling right here, using technique to beat your opponent instead of raw strength. The last of these many labors was when he passed a stronghold, and a man invited him inside. He had an oddly sized iron bed, and when a traveler would lay down on it, he would help them fit. Those too small to the bed were chained in and stretched to fit. Others too tall were given a haircut, and then some, in order to fit. Theseus was in absolutely no mood, given the days he had just had, and dispatched this guy the same way he had done to all of his victims, and finished his journey to Athens. For those of you wondering, he was too tall for the bed, so Theseus beheaded him. Theseus didn't know it at the time, but he would have been beside himself with glee that these six battles would become known as his own little set of labors, in the same vein as his idol, Hercules, and he had made this small part of the world safe for his people. He was admitted into the palace, but he was surprised to meet with the queen instead of the king, who was his supposed father. He got a strange feeling from this woman and withheld the reason he was there, remembering his mother's warnings. The queen, as it turns out, is Medea, and if you aren't familiar with her, we'll go over her in exhaustive detail when we get to Jason and the Argonauts, but this takes place after that. Basically, she's a sorceress and a survivor. She's incredibly ruthless, and she will do anything to further her own ends, but she's been hurt before. Regardless, she was shrewd. She heard Theseus came from treason. He was about 20 years old, and the last time Aegeus had been there was 20 years ago, a trip he was notoriously cagey about, even to this day. The boy even looked like the king. This wouldn't do at all. She excused herself, but not before inviting him to the banquet that evening. Medea apparently actually had children with the king, which included a son, so this new heir's existence was a threat. Other sources say that the son was from a previous marriage we'll talk about in a different story, but I'm going with the child being a son of Aegeus. She met with the king. The new kid? Medea told him he was just another agent of the king's brother sent to murder him. Don't worry about him, though. The king would just need to poison Theseus tonight at the banquet. That night, Theseus sat in his sandals with the sword he had gotten from underneath the rock. He saw the man who was supposedly his father, the king, and he could see himself in the mixture of his mother and this man. The king came up to him and made pleasant small talk. Treason? I've been there, once. It was a long time ago. Here, have a drink. Aegeus handed the young man the poison. It would work slowly, but it was powerful enough to doom him with one sip. He would become ill later on that night, but he wouldn't live through to see the morning. He was lucky his wife Medea had seen through this ruse, and that they would be able to get rid of this assassin easily. King Aegeus was in another conversation, but watched the young man. 
Medea eyed him too. Take a drink, she said to herself. Aegeus turned back around to rejoin the conversation. He would take a drink whenever he did. It would happen when it happened. The boy was as good as dead anyway. But as he turned, he caught a flash of the young man's sandals. That couldn't be. He turned back around and took a longer look, completely ignoring whoever he was talking to. They were the sandals. And the sword. He made a terrible mistake. And just as he thought that, Theseus, his long-lost son and rightful heir, raised the cup to his mouth. And that's the story for this week. Next time, we'll backtrack a bit and tell the story of Daedalus and his son Icarus. Daedalus is an amazing inventor who, for the good of himself and everyone around him, should never invent anything ever again. I want to say thank you to Preston, Ollie, Mandy, and Alibaba from Patreon, as well as Rachel, Amanda, Edsel, Emily, Chris, Mikey, Stephanie, Fabian, Tara, Zan, Tom, Lou, Daniel, Suzanne, Ren, Marlu, Tim, Laurel, Anita, Carmen, Weston, Elena, Tessera, CB, Samantha, Louise, Nicholas, and Lee for the new memberships on the website. I want to say thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. It's because of you that I can keep this podcast going as a weekly podcast. So thank you so much. And I am very, very grateful. If you'd like to support the show, I have a whole membership thing going on the website. For $5 a month, there's a private podcast feed with a monthly Fairy Tale Friday episode and shows that go deeper into the history and culture behind the stories I tell. $5 a month is less than one sock. Not a pair. One sock with a narwhal fighting a unicorn on it. Which, yeah, I can't really argue with that. It sounds great. If you want more info, you can go to support.mythpodcast.com. And really, just thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. The creature this week is the Lydert from Hungarian folklore. Okay, so there are two versions of this creature. One is super weird, and the other is very sad. The first is a miracle chicken. It's hatched from the first egg of a black hen kept warm under the arm of a human, and then it needs to be placed into a heap of manure. It can make its owner rich because it hoards gold, but there are some significant downsides. It will sneak into your room at night, and like the Alp from one of the early episodes, it will sit on your chest and make you sick over time. In fact, the Hungarian word for nightmare literally means lighter pressure from the pressure it puts on the body. There are two ways to stop the nightmares and get the money it's collected. The first is to persuade it to complete an impossible task, like hauling sand with a rope or water with a sieve. If you can't convince it to do these things, just kick the miracle chicken into a hollow tree and imprison it there, and that will apparently destroy it. The other form it can take is much sadder. It still visits people in the night, but it will rain down in the form of sparks, and it will only visit the family members of those that have recently lost someone close to them, like widows or widowers. It will feed upon the grief and life of the widow night after night until she dies. The only way to break the spell of the deception? Look at his feet. It can transform into the perfect likeness of a dead loved one. Except for the feet. Those remain bird feet. Feet apparently signal that something is not human. There's last week's creature, and this week, and in Japanese folklore, ghosts often don't have feet, and just sort of taper off and disappear as they get closer to the ground. 
That's why in the story of Yurashima Taro in episode 11, he stomps and shows the man his feet to prove he's not a ghost. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. And so if you're dealing with someone you suspect might not be human, if his or her feet are animal feet, or, you know, not there, then you might be onto something. That's it for the show this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>